0: Welcome back to episode 90 of Warrior's Den. On this episode, counter-terrorist policing and use-of-force expert Nir Maman. Uh, Nir is a phenomenal instructor and profoundly changed how I taught when I did his course for the first time in 2012-13, I can't remember exactly, and he is world-renowned in the counter-terrorist world. But uh, this podcast does not do justice to his extensive background. And initially, when we're talking about his his uh, upbringing in martial arts, you'll have to forgive the ahs and ums as he's trying to remember the extensive history of his youth. But once we get into his area of expertise, use of force, counterterrorism, training, and his experience in Israel and uh, elsewhere, you can really see the expertise come out, the precision and comprehensive nature of how he speaks. I thought I would read off of his updated website, ct707.com, on his background to give you uh, a, an idea of who Near is. So Near has a professional background that spans 20 years of service in the fields of military special operations, police tactical operations, law enforcement, and high-risk security operations. He served in the Israeli Special Force terrorist Unit and Terror School. During his service, he held several positions, including commander of the Counterterrorism School International Joint Forces Training Section, where he was reasonable, responsible for developing and delivering specialized counterterror warfare, hostage rescue, and Krav Maga training to special force units from various countries around the world, including the United States of America that would attend the israeli special force counterterrorism school in preparation for high-risk deployments in iraq and afghanistan he held the position of lead counterterror instructor on the counterterror school's hostage rescue section where he was responsible for the training the idf's hostage rescue unit in all areas of counterterror warfare and hostage rescue including hostage rescue operations in domestic and foreign hostile environments close quarters combat, combat, aircraft, ship, train, and bus interdiction, suicide bomber recognition and engage in engagement, urban warfare, tactical shooting, escape and evasion, and Krav Maga. In conjunction with his other duties, Nir was also assigned to the Counterterror School's Chief Instructor in Research and Development Section, where he was responsible for enhancing and developing operational counterterror tactical methodologies that are currently deployed by all Israeli special force units. Some of the methodologies he developed or enhanced for the counter School include active shooter intervention in open terrain, fighting in built-up urban areas, and deployment of ballistic shield in urban warfare. His duties in this section also include training the school's instructors. Near was also appointed as the counter School subject matter expert for active terror attack shooter intervention. He was an operational team leader and on the Counter-Terror Unit during high-risk deployments which included active shooter terror attack interventions, arrests of high-threat terrorists, and high-risk entries, and searches of terrorist strongholds throughout the West Bank and Gaza Strip regions. During the time designation, NIR was additionally tasked as the unit's M-72 66mm light anti tank weapon operator. In April 2009, NIR was decorated with a Distinguished Service Award by the Israeli Defense Force, Ground Force Command, and Israeli Defense for Special Qualifications Command for his exemplary service and accomplishments. In Canada, Near served on a nuclear tactical SWAT unit as a patrol constable with transit authority, a police constable, use of force and tactical instructor for a majority major police academy, and use of force instructor for Canada's immigration enforcement services. He is currently a sworn police officer and appointed managing director of the Canadian Tactical Officers Association. In the United States, Nier was a sworn police officer appointed as a deputy commander of a tactical unit, and he is currently a sworn reserve deputy sheriff. Nier appears regularly on national news segments, providing expert insight on global events related to terrorism policing response and training. For over 20 years, Nier has also worked in the security operations field in various capacities including planning and commanding the security details for government officials including diplomats from the israeli government corporate figures and celebrities Neer was appointed as the lead security advisor to the jewish community of the greater toronto area where he was responsible for developing security and emergency response protocols for community stakeholders, as well as conducting threat risk assessments for the Jewish community schools, community centers, synagogues, and for planning the security and emergency protocols for sensitive and large-scale community events. In addition to close protection, operations, and counter-terror warfare, one of Nir's subject matter areas of expertise is hostage rescue. He has been commissioned on several project tasks with deploying rescue operations, for incidents related to kidnappings and hostile terror-oriented takeovers. In 2010, NIR was commissioned to develop and deploy the rescue mission of three commercial ships and their crews off the coast of Africa that were taken over and being held captive by maritime terrorist pirates. In 2020, NIR was commissioned to locate and rescue Canadian citizens that was abducted and being held captive in Middle Eastern countries. For the period of three months, the Canadian government was unable to locate the young woman or rescue her. Within 48 hours of being commissioned, Nir was able to locate, rescue, and return her home to Canada. Nir is a certified police use of force instructor and SWAT operator in both the United States and Canada and has a martial arts background of over 35 years with black belts, instructor certifications in Kramaga, Hapkido, Taekwondo, and Jeekwondo. He has been retained. As a subject matter expert witness consultant on legal cases in canada and the united states on matter relating to officer involvement shootings and tactical applications he continues to deliver counterterrorism and active shooting intervention tactical shooting and Kramaga training to police and military organizations across north america including the fbi the rcmp and many other to date NIR has trained thousands of special force soldiers police tactical swat officers Patrol officers, custom and immigration enforcement officers, tactical and armed security officers, close protection agents, bodyguards, and instructors in all the fields from various countries around the world, including Canada, the United States, Israel, and others. That is just a fraction of his background. Can you believe it? I've uh, personally been certified under him, uh, his Kramaga program, three times. Uh, where people from all over the world come, including uh, martial arts legends uh, Burton Richardson, which who I had the pleasure of meeting uh, in, during one of the events. Nears background is so impressive; there are those who don't even believe it, and yet it has all been verified completely, with letters of reference from all of these agencies. This is a man that you want to learn from if you have the opportunity, and I uh, talk about it a bit that. The way he taught from a philosophical and uh, more conceptual approach radically changed how I learned to teach Kramaga because before that, it was only the traditional way. And we'll discuss that in this podcast. We talk about his background, as this is the first time he's on, the first of I hope will be many. We, I wanted to introduce who he was and sort of make sense of his extensive background. This is one of the few podcasts, at least recently, or I do very little talking, as Nir has obviously a wealth of knowledge and expertise on various topics. We talk about, other than his background, uh, we talk a little bit about the counterterrorism program and his experience in the IDF. I asked him about the Moncton shooting, which resulted in the deaths of several RCMP officers into which his testimony upon the investigation helped get the uh, police carbines into active duty not just pump action antiquated shotguns which are not appropriate for a lot of active shooter situations we talk about Krav Maga tactical training and the evolution of training as it goes at one point we even discuss uh, the Israeli, a modern Israeli approach to room entry which is uh, staying at the door as needed which has even changed since I was infantry in the IDF And we discussed that at some point in the podcast. Uh, I would have loved to have Nir on for all day, but Nir is a very busy man with a family. So I was only able to get him for a little over an hour and a half. But again, I will gladly have him on in the future where we can expand on a variety of topics. Now, if that wasn't enough for you, it's time to say this podcast was brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions since 2013. You can train with us in person as we are taking new students now. In, if you're in the Metro Vancouver area, you can go to urbantacticskm.com and click on the new student tab and you can sign up for us a free trial class. We are located in Burnaby, British Columbia out of Budo Mixed Martial Arts. We also offer the Canadian Firearms Safety Course and Canadian Restricted Firearms Safety Course. You can go to that same web site, urbantacticskm.com. Click on the long-winded CFSC-CRFSC tab, and it'll take you to a sign-up. The next course, uh, when you're listening to this, will be September 25th and 26th. You can click the sign-up here on that page to sign up. Limited space. The more who sign up, then I will add more CAS Club courses as needed. You can also check out UTCamblog.com, which is where I post my own self-defense related musings as well as that of my students. I'm encouraging my students to post more often and I have several upcoming posts from some of my students. Uticamblog.com is also where you can find the older episodes of the podcast. Just click on the podcast tab. As on the standard big mainstream sites, Spotify, etc., it'll only ever be the last 10 episodes. And you can see KramaGa principles as we teach them at UTKM, some of which I learned from Nir, some of which I've learned from my own personal experience, some of which I've learned from other KramaGa experts. That is utkmblog.com. And if you're feeling super, super generous, you can click on the Support Us tab, and by donating a one-time monthly or e- annually donation, you can allow me to continue to provide you awesome content. At least I think it's awesome. Hopefully you do too. Now, one of the benefits of the pandemic, is as there are very few, but I had the time to put together another website, utkmu.com, which took me many a months as it was only myself doing it and help of some of my students during filming to put out our novice and beginner curriculum in video format. So on UTKMU.com, you can access the UTKM curriculum as we teach it. The advanced curriculum is not up there yet. However, there will be restrictions as to who can access it when it is available. You can sign up for uh, UTKMU uh, novice package, or you can sign up for uh, the beginner package, which allows you to access the curriculum in video format in its entirety. This is a great resource if you're a Krav Maga instructor looking who does not know how to structure a program and wants to look at what we've done as many organizations make it difficult to give you an easy-to-follow structured program. Or if you're just a Krav Maga student looking to expand how you look at Krav Maga or the techniques that are we have found to be effective through trial, trial and error not just from learning from others like Nir, but also trial and error in our school with people of all sizes, you can go to utkmu.com, click on sign up, and you can sign up from month to month or an annual subscription. Then you'll be able to access the curriculum. There is also a free to access area if you just want to check it out, which also has links to the this podcast, as well as a firearms safety page that is meant as a supplement to the Canadian firearms safety program, and that is a free resource. You can check that out. You can also check out Urban Tactics Kramaga Maga uh, on Instagram, Urban Tactics Krav Maga, Twitter, Urban Tactics KM, though it's mainly a feed for other things, as well as on Facebook, Urban Tactics Krav Maga, pretty straightforward. I would also like to put it out there. I'm not sure if it'll be up yet. Probably not. I am going to having another website, which will be a shop for UTKM, where you can buy all our branded merchandise and so much more. I will be expanding that in the future. Uh, It has not been launched yet, so stay tuned for that. Additionally, if you are in the Metro Vancouver area, and you need to set up a home gym or get some basic fitness equipment or flooring for a gym, dojo, or again your garage, you can go to jailfitnesslab.com. Full disclosure uh, I am an owner of this company and another side project that we started to help people maintain their fitness during the COVID lockdowns. So that's jailfitnesslab.com. We have a variety of fitness equipment from barbells, bumper plates, tri-grip plates, squat racks, and benches available to set up a basic home gym. Why pay annual fees and not be able to work out when you want, as well as run the risk of closures or shenanigans policies that make no sense? You can also click on the mats and flooring tab, If you need flooring, custom flooring, uh, puzzle mats, judo mats, rollout mats, or a variety of rubber mats for your gym, dojo, or even outdoor space, we can do custom orders for you. Use the promo code on checkout, uh, WARRIORSDEN5, for 5% off your orders. However, if you get $3,000 or more, then you can get just a general 10% off, though those do not combine. If you have any questions regarding that, you can email jlfitnesslab at gmail.com and we will gladly help you out again. Shipping for such products is extremely expensive, so at this time, we're only dealing with the Metro Vancouver area. I believe that is it for that. Of course, if you are an outside sponsor and would love to sponsor this podcast, I would much appreciate it. If not, I will continue finding ways to generate revenue, to continue having the time to do this content, I believe that's it. So again, this is uh, Nir Maman, uh founder of CT Seven Hundred Seven Training, as well as counter ter- world-renowned counterterrorism expert, policing expert, use of force expert. Uh, one thing I didn't mention before is that I would very much like to talk about the need to adapt and change the mentality that Israelis are really known of in your training programs, no matter what style. You cannot stay stagnant, and we talk about that near the end. Keep an open mind, as Bruce Lee said, empty your cup. So here is episode 90 with Nir Maman. Krav Maga is not just a self-defense system. It is a way of life. Warrior's Den is a podcast for Kravists, fighters, martial artists, warriors, politicians, and general citizens. Consider this. The society that separates scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Usadidi, your host Jonathan Fader, talks to guests in an open and uncensored format about their fights, their philosophies, and their lives. No topic is taboo and the conversation may start in one place and end in another. As the quote suggests, you cannot separate the warrior from the politics and the world around them, as a true warrior must be a student in all forms of art and science. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. So I'm here with Nir the man, the myth, the legend. How are you today?
1: I'm doing fantastic. Thank you.
0: Thank you. John. Awesome. So let's just start. Uh, you have an extensive career that some say might even be too much to believe, but let's just start <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, your martial arts. When, when did you get into martial arts and then Krav Maga?
1: <coughs> um... So, I guess uh, I was kind of fortunate enough, I uh, I fell into martial arts um, as a toddler, about uh, four, going on five years old. Um, and that happened by virtue of the fact that uh, my father, who came from um, a fairly uh, big family, he had about eight brothers and sisters, and the majority of all of them were in martial arts uh, growing up as well. Um, his background, he is from Morocco and uh, grew up in Morocco and, um, him and his siblings started training in uh, karate and, uh, in judo. And, uh, when he, uh, later immigrated to Israel, uh, joined the IDF and, um, that's when he got his exposure to, uh, and, uh, Uh, you know, spent time between being a a practicing end-user soldier of Kav Maga to eventually becoming an instructor and um, My training kind of uh, happened uh, um, uh, Through uh, through home Uh, You know kind of a running joke kind of a sorry a running joke, but not that jokingly I mean we always uh, again we have a Moroccan father so any Moroccan out there will right away know what I'm talking about but um, you know uh, the daily beatings we would get is what yeah. we call our kavmaga training. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's where it began for us. And, um, more formally, uh, we, uh, we immigrated to, so we left, uh, Israel. Um, I was, uh, coming up on five years old. We moved to uh, France where, um, the majority of my, uh, my father's family, uh, half of them are all in Israel. The other half are all in France. <coughs> and, um, that's the first time I stepped into a dojo was in, uh, was in France. We lived there for about a year and, uh, in the neighborhood in, in the central Paris area where, uh, most of our family was at that time. Um, again, uh, most of my, uh, my uncles who were there were still, uh, still involved in martial arts. And I remember going to uh, a dojo with, uh, uh, with a few of them, uh, one day and, uh, took my first kick at a punching bag over there. It was big, traditional wooden, uh, wooden floor. Um, their friend who was the, uh, one of the instructors there, uh, gave me a book, uh, my very first ninja book I received. It was an awesome book on, uh, on, on ninjas. Um, the life of a ninja, the training, the weaponry, the whole bit, and he signed it for me. And I still have that somewhere in one of these, uh, Tupperware boxes you see sitting behind me here. Yeah. When I get to unpack to my new office, I'll, uh, I'll find it. But um, that's kind of where it really the seed really kind of I guess planted uh, within me. We moved to Canada. I was uh, six years old and um, almost immediately started uh, training um, in karate a little bit, actually it was judo first mm-hmm. and then karate. And it was at a local uh, community center in uh, in the neighborhood. Um, then in uh, uh, what's it called, public school. Uh, I don't remember what grade now it would have been. Uh, I don't know if grade three or four, I don't even remember now. But uh, uh, we had an after afterschool uh, karate program that was taking place there. And so I started training there. And um, at the age of... I think 12, I want to say 12 is where I can say that I really, uh, kind of formally started, you know, real training and understanding what I was doing and really developing a passion for it. And that was at, uh, Kim's Black Belt Academy, uh, here mm-hmm. in Toronto, Young Finch, uh,
0: Taekwondo, right?
1: Taekwondo, Hapkido and Judo. Yeah. And it was uh, one of these, um, you know, really old school dungey, uh, hardcore training kind of places uh, it was some of the best, uh, best days of my life for training. I lived there, uh, every single day that I could, I would hop on the bus and, uh, and head over there. Um, and, and oh, sorry. So the call came in. Um, and, uh, that's where I really started to develop, uh, my kicking ability and flexibility and sparring and competition. And, uh, it was the majority, the overall majority was all Taekwondo, uh, a little bit of Aikido and, um. Uh, a little bit of judo uh, once in a while and um that continued to uh to progress uh moved on to another local taekwondo uh school in the neighborhood um about the age of 15 discovered another place and i was kind of training in both Mm. Um, and at the age of 16 i was still in high school and literally across the street from my high school uh, Master Junko uh, opened up the school. He was uh, one of the greatest Taekwondo instructors I've ever had. The guy was just absolutely incredible. Uh, that's where I got into WTF Taekwondo, and I started really heavily um, getting into competition and uh, really developed my Taekwondo background. Um, by about this time, I already had some some intro into uh, through through home through family friends of my father who had served with him in the idf uh, there was a periodic uh training or get together as a group and, uh, and train and uh uh basements of uh of uh you know uh, one of their homes um uh, another one lived in an apartment building and we would get together in a um uh i guess it was the rec room of the of the building and that's where i started to develop my my introduction to uh to uh club Maga. um started my trek back and forth uh to israel uh around the age of 19 i believe it was and that's where my combat training uh began to formalize um and
0: is that in of- the military or just uh, like just training yeah. whenever you're there
1: and some other i went uh, i went to uh yeah um for you know some soul-searching reasons some mm. family visitation, recreational, uh, with some, some you know, started to develop my plans for uh, for the military. Um, and actually, i got to take a step back. Um, uh, I was, my first trip to Israel back after we left was when I was 12 years old, before my bar mitzvah. Uh, and I was there for uh, the entire summer, about uh, two months. <clears throat> um, and the local community center, uh, where my family that I was staying with um, uh, lived in Azul. Uh, there was a Krav program that was going on there. i uh, couldn't even for the life of me tell you, remember who the instructor was, what federation organization, none of that, you know, resonated with me. I had absolutely no clue. It was all Hebrew going in one year and out the other year. Yeah. Uh, but I was there for, for the two months training, uh, training. That's kind of where uh, a lot more of my, uh, you know, Krav uh, platform, uh, became, uh, solidified, uh, and, um, over the years, um, between my training in Canada, uh, all my, uh, my journey back and forth to Israel. Um, that's where I really started to hone in on, on, uh, I guess my, my journey or my, my objective of, uh, of, uh, what I wanted out of my training. Um, my, I was having fun competing. I love to compete in, in Taekwondo. It did a lot of wonders for me. And I'm very grateful for my uh, Taekwondo background. My, uh, um, I guess the, the event that uh, rung my bell and uh, uh, planted me on my direction of training uh, was a uh, event that uh, I think I would have shared it in one of the certification courses that uh, that you uh, you came to when I was yeah, yeah. 12 years old. Um, my best friend at that time, uh, uh, we had the pleasure of being swarmed by a group of about 25 neo-Nazis, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that was uh, quite the beating I took, my very first introduction to uh, multiple attackers, and uh, I decided from that day that uh, my goal was to, you know, become a big bad uh, Terminator Robocop, <laughs> you know, commando you
0: just need to uh, get some metal installed in you and then you'll fit the bill perfectly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Working on it. I'm surprised yeah. it hasn't happened yet. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But uh, yeah, that's where my, um, uh, that's that's the that event that day was, the day that I had decided that I was going to, uh, I was going to embark on a professional pathway of uh, military and, and policing. And my training was going to be, focused on real life uh, uh, survival. And uh, I literally was just firing in every direction, running everywhere that I can, training everywhere that I can. I've trained with a lot of instructors here in Canada, a lot of different schools uh, in, uh, in, from again, Taekwondo Hikido, to, uh, I started um, at the age of I believe about 17 or 18, uh, Filipino martial arts and mm. do. Uh, some other systems, no need to, to put in there that I kind of dabbled in or you know sampled here and there, um, uh, but that's uh, that's kind of where it uh, where it all happened. Yeah. and uh, you know I, uh, I look back today, I can't believe how much time has passed, but I'm going on about uh, 40 years of, uh, of training since the day that I threw my very first uh, first kick in that uh, in that dojo in uh, in, in France.
0: Uh, till today, um, I have- yeah, it's, it's quite extensive. I just wanted to expand, like, cause you're saying when you're 12 years old, you it's Metro Vancouver area, uh, sorry, Toronto area. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, cause like when I grew up in Vancouver, Anti-Semitism wasn't something I noticed that much. I only had a experience once or twice. Um, But I've heard stories coming out of the Toronto area back then that anti-Semitism and you know attack the Jew was quite quite a common experience. (laughs) Is is that the major major event in that, or is it something that you had to be wary of continuously?
1: I think as Jews, we've been dealing with it for four thousand years now. It Despite what the media it, says, right? Exactly. It yeah. doesn't matter where uh, you know where you're at. I can tell you that uh, when we when we uh, immigrated to Canada, um, I've had uh, I've had a few incidents of uh, anti-Semitism. Um, uh, you know, there's I, I've been I've been the target of bullies ever since I entered mm. schooling. You know, in Canada, that was always a thing until until grade 10 Mm. Um, literally almost every single year whoever the popular bully was in my school I was the popular target for that bully Mm. Um, and there were times where there were you know remarks anti-semitic remarks that were made and stuff and I don't know whether those were really if if these uh if these bullies you know really uh felt that knew what they were talking about if it was just blind ignorance um you know the uh, the uh, that attack when I was 12 years old, that uh, mass uh, swarming by those neo-Nazis, that 100%, you know, these guys were all their 80s shaved heads and earrings and swastikas mm. drawn on their, on their clothing. Um, and, you know, given, given, I have time to see us, give us the uh, Hell Hitler uh, uh, salute and all the remarks. And that definitely was, you know, as pure anti-Semitism as it, uh, as it would get um and uh you know that, that was one of the uh main basis for their for their targeting of uh, mm-hmm. myself and my buddy at that time um my father since we got to canada um he experienced on numerous occasions um, anti-semitism and a lot of stuff uh, back when he started in the workforce uh, working for different companies uh there were several there were several things that had come up um so you know, is it rampant? I really don't know to tell you. I don't think so. But it's more than enough to be noticed and to leave yeah. a car and to stay in your memory and to say that it definitely is part of, uh, you know, part of the fabric of, uh, of society.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's going to go away. Like, Canada is pretty good about it comparatively to, say, like, uh, cities in the States or, or Europe, which is, I don't know how people deal with it there. Um, yeah, so was that sort of... And the family history was that the, like the motivating factor to go decide to go full full on into the IDF.
1: Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to. Uh, I knew, you know, I had that bug, that cop soldier bug in me from, uh, mm. from a really young age. My the ninja f- bug. <laughs> ninja bug, yeah. My uh, my entire family, um, they've all served. Uh, they currently still do serve. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been part of our, um, of our up, uh, upbringing. Uh, one of my uncles was a police officer, I remember, uh, in Israel at, uh, again, the age of about maybe four years old, the very first time. Uh, he was, uh, by the time that I kind of, you know, was big enough to uh, of to understand and process things, he was, uh, by that time, several years on the, uh, on the Israeli police and working in undercover capacity. So I never really understood what it was but i remember one day going out and uh in his driveway there was a uh, police car and i was enamored by him like what in the world is that and i ran inside and two uniformed police officers uh that uh, worked out in the station came by to visit him and that's the first time i saw a uniform and i was really really uh, intrigued by it and uh it's probably where the uh you know the bug was uh, was planted uh, going back to that incident again, that swarming um, at the age of 12, uh, I managed to kind of uh, while I was getting uh, beat up, I knew that I better get myself out of this crowd, and I managed to. Um, it was really the the shot that that uh, that grounded me that I took, which was uh, the main guy uh, Kyle. I will mention his uh, his last name. Um, I, I had five or six of these guys on top of me my buddy was off in another uh, another section of the uh the block there uh with a whole bunch of them and they're all feeding me punches and I was huddled in and right through the crowd this big uh black Doc Martin comes right in and hits me in the solar plexus and and collapsed me all the the air got sucked right out and I collapsed and that's what kind of saved me because they couldn't reach me they were all trying to get me at the same time and they were all you know, blocking themselves. And it had an opening between some legs. I remember quickly crawling through, getting up and they're sprinting uh, through, uh, through the whole crowd uh, back to um, back to school, back to the principal's office. And uh, the police were called and uh, the moment that police officer came in, he was a big giant. And, um, you know, I said, uh, let's go find these bastards. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. when, he that, when he said that, I felt uh, went from being super scared to feeling super safe and protected. And that's what I wanted to do for, uh, for others. And um, that's where I said, all right, this is what I'm going to do when I, uh, when I grow up. And so I grew up in Canada. Um, I was Israeli, but I was more Canadian as far as, you know, culture and um, language and, um, and, and the whole bit. And I mean, I'd have phone calls with relatives, you know, on a regular basis back home and they're all in the service or getting ready to go serve and do something that I was like, I'd be, that'd be really cool to do. And, uh, maybe I should go do that. Um, but initially I wanted to, I figured I would just go join the Canadian military. I had a lot of friends from the Canadian military as well. And, uh, my, uh, my parents, uh, when I started to give it more thought and when I started to have these conversations with uh, some of my, uh, some of my friends at that time, you know, um, everybody was saying, look, everybody's going home to serve. And if you're going to go and put in that effort, and potentially sacrifice, do it for, do it for Israel. And that made sense. With and uh, the day that I, um, asked my, uh, my father for all of his, uh, documents, uh, cause I need to go to the consulate and get the, uh, the process going. Um, he said, uh, over my dead body, you're not going <laughs> to, go to the IVF. That's not why we, uh, we took you guys out of there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, go join the K military if you want. I don't care about that. You can go ahead and do that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, my my parents actually invested time in having some of their local Israeli friends, who had served in the IDF, some who had served with my uh, with my father, come sit down and talk me, try to talk me out of it. <laughs> you know that's yeah. uh,
0: super common. When when I went, same thing. You have all these people. You shouldn't do it. Don't do it. Why are you doing it? I don't even have that much family there. I have some. Um, and it's, it's, it's a I don't know if it's just an Israeli or Jewish thing. Why would you go join the Canadian? Don't do the Israeli. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, um, and we all know uh, the relationship between kids and parents. The more you yeah. try to stop you from doing something, the more you're going to just uh, run towards it. And so, I remember calling my parents one day from Israel saying, All right, see you guys in a couple of years. <laughs> and they just yeah. had to face that reality.
0: Yeah. So then how did you get into CT 707, uh, the unit? Uh, because like a lot of those units, like, I don't know what half these units, you know, there's a million, a million units in Israel. And uh, anyone outside of Israel definitely has no clue. And even in Israel, people <laughs> don't always know which unit is what. So how, how did you find yourself from disobeying the family to in in one of the best units at the time?
1: So, um, I was back and forth. I was back and forth from that point um, uh, to Israel a few times. Um, I started out doing some some other paramilitary stuff uh, before I actually joined the IDF. Um, I was in a, a, a counterterror intervention unit in uh, in the Shtachim, uh, uh, in the um, uh, settlement that I was uh, living in. Mm. Uh, ended up uh, connecting with all kinds of people that you connect with when you're in that, uh, you know, domain in, in Israel, got sucked into all kinds of uh, projects, um, uh, had a bunch of training, and then um, it wasn't until uh, 2000, I was back and forth at that point, And uh, there's a number of reasons why. I've had uh, some family things that caused me to have to uh, come back to uh, to Canada, um, some unfortunate uh, family things that were going on at home. Um, 2000... And, uh, 2006, I believe it was, uh, we had our second uh, Lebanon war <clears throat> and, um, I had this monkey on my back because I didn't really fully, uh, complete what I set out to do initially with, uh, with my service. And I said, enough is enough. I, uh, I got to go back. And, um, It's next to impossible, you know, uh, as you know, the IDF yourself, it's, um, it's its own world, 18 years old, you're in, if you are in and you sign for Keva, that's where you stay until you're, you know, you're an old guy uh, like me, uh, or if you go out, you're out and that's it. But to come into service at the IDF, um, unlike any other country in the world, when you're in your twenties, uh, it's, it's in almost impossible battle. Yep. Uh,
0: <laughs> I know
1: all kinds Very of well. stories of, you know, guys who said, I don't care that I'm, you know, 28, 29, 30 years old. I'm going to serve and there's some great great stories of how guys were able to uh, you know, uh get themselves into uh, force the IDF to take them. Hmm. Um I started reaching out to <clears throat> former colleagues, uh friends, relatives, uh, professional um, uh, connections that I had in uh, all throughout Israel, from the military to the police to uh, the uh, security uh, establishment, and um, sending out my my resume everywhere, um, adamant that uh, it was time to uh, to go back. We had the second Lebanon War that started, at, at this time, I was um, I was uh, working in in law enforcement, policing here in Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. So, former police officer, I was. Um, um, Work at the Atlantic Police Academy out east, uh, as a use of force and tactical instructor, um, running a tactical division for all the uh, the post 9 uh, 11 initiatives that the Kane government was starting to implement. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, nuclear SWAT teams and specialized um, uh, uh, policing teams and um, augmenting all the uh. Uh, the knowledge base and capabilities of, of uh, the law enforcement community across Canada and everything related to counterterror warfare. And um, uh, I, uh, I, I Second Lebanon War happened. I said enough is enough already. I got friends and former colleagues that are all in there fighting and I wanted to uh, to be back and I, uh, I just stopped you know to no end. It just takes the right person to, uh, to finally uh, connect with. I connected with a uh, back then he was a lieutenant uh, colonel. Um, and, uh, he said, no problem. I'll find a way to make this happen for you. Hmm. My resume, um, right after the war, literally about a handful of days after the war, when everything kind of, uh, you know, the, uh, the whole administration opened up again, and from back to normal, he called me up and said, um, uh, so I have something for you, um, but there's no guarantees. Um, you have an interview request with the commander of uh, the counterterror unit. The hotel, uh, um, they reviewed your uh, your resume and uh, they want to talk to you. Um, right. So you got yourself on a plane, fly back uh, to Israel, and there's no guarantees, there's no promises. Um, it's on your own dime. See what happens. So I was on a plane within a few days, um, flew there, went to uh, meet Adam. And I had uh, my interview with the uh, commander of the unit at that time. Um, wow. he,
0: How old were you at that time? Uh,
1: was Twenty, I think
0: twenty-seven.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think about twenty-seven. Uh, twenty-seven, maybe twenty-eight.
0: And you probably so you had like uh, in. The Canadian nuclear tactical response team and all the adjoining things, what, five, six years doing that prior to this? I
1: had, look, so I actually got into, um, you know, I started, I started in the, um, in the profession, we'll call it, um, when I was about 18 years old. Hmm. Uh, um, Yeah, 17, 18 years old. Um, And it was in Canada, here in Canada. Um, I got uh, recruited into a, uh, a close protection uh, company, uh, that was operating both in the U S and in Canada headed up by, uh, a former Canadian and U S uh, special forces, uh, guys, and they had some very significant, uh, global close protection uh, contracts. And, um, I had a friend of mine who was connected to the, uh, the, um, head of the uh, Canadian management uh, contingent set up an interview for me. I had a extensive martial arts background by this point you know I uh, looked like an aspiring soldier police officer whatever you want to call it I had the, uh, the demeanor and the composure and I carried myself you know very professionally
0: and the Mohawk right
1: <laughs> this is the first of its kind no Mohawk I don't remember what I had been, but uh, <coughs> um, uh, got hired I got hired on uh, went through um, uh, pretty rigorous initial uh, training training um, uh, Of training and qualification with them, for lack of a better term, Uh, we had training uh, every Mondays and Tuesdays for the entire duration of our engagement with the uh, with the firm. Um, And it all ranged between, you know, uh, martial arts, hand-to-hand combat training, uh, tactical firearms, and uh, tactics, including uh, close protection. It was it was pretty hardcore. I was very fortunate to uh, to uh, you know um, have connected with them, and uh, I had an incredible foundation already built through that very quickly I turned uh, uh, to become one of the uh, one of the, uh, the DT heads instructors because of my background uh, for the, uh, for the organization. so that's kind of where it all started and then um, uh, you know I, I had a variety of projects that I was engaged in uh, from uh, different close protection projects to uh, security related things. Um, I had training that I already did uh, in Israel. Uh, going into you know about 19 20 years old counterterrorism training and uh and all kinds of other stuff and um and then i started with the uh with the uh, police academy uh that was in uh 2003 um and i had uh a lot of a lot of training that I went through um, uh, from there. So uh, being an instructor as well, that opened up the door for me to go through a lot of uh, different um, uh, courses um, from DT courses to tactical shooting and, and uh, tactical courses. Um, so by the time that I sat down for my interview with the Otel commander, um, I already had a, a pretty, uh, you know, robust uh, resume. And um, Additionally, with that, um, at this point, uh, the IDF you know, has always been kind of a go-to place for a lot of different militaries around the world that would come and, and, and train with our different units to learn what we do and why we do it. But after 9-11, that uh, relationship really became formal and became kind of a, a, a staple as far as the, uh, the SOP for uh, a lot of the different uh, uh, um, militaries around the world, and for the U.S. as well. Uh, so it was a regular thing. So we had the uh, the IDF's uh, international training branch that was formed because of these relationships and. Um, in Mitkan Adam, which was the home base for where all these units globally would, would come to, uh, to learn from all of our special forces, uh, we had the international joint forces training section that was, uh, that was started. And so, um, you know, in addition to uh, me just being another Israeli and wanting to come back into the service and to, and to serve um, and being, you know, just another regular kind of uh, IDF soldier, um, there was a very unique predicament in that um, the, uh, the hotel was uh, was uh, the host to all these foreign units um, for uh, training missions that were very very significant. And you know, as uh, as as uh, 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 Owen said to me at that time, you know, I've got these. Green Berets and Marines and, and other, you know, uh, units that, uh, I don't know if I can mention or not, so I won't, but, uh, they are coming here and these guys are, you know, in their late twenties and their thirties into their forties, they've mm-hmm. been in 15, 20 years. These guys are seven feet tall, eight feet wide. Yeah. Um, you know, it's
0: funny you say that. Cause I, I spent time at Midcan Adam, uh, for sniper school and the Israelis were always, uh, you know, trash-talking the Marines. They're like, oh, they're big dumb idiots. I'm like, nah, that's a stereotype from Hollywood. And then I, I met them when I was there, and they're all huge. And I'm like, it's, I could not believe they're all huge. <laughs> the shortest guy was like 5'10", but he was, still must have been like 200 pounds. <laughs> 100%, 100%,
1: right? So, I mean, I'll tell you what the secret is to that, right? So... uh <laughs> Only Me. only IDF soldiers would uh, would uh, you know understand this. But uh, if you've been to other militaries around the world and you go visit their their um, uh, their, uh, their, uh, their 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 kitchens, Cafeteria, their yeah. their cafeterias they whatever their mess halls, and you see what they eat, and then you yeah. come see what they force feed us in the IDF, you'll understand. Yeah. <laughs> and when when every single US unit would come uh to us for training. The number one reason for the jumping for joy for all of us is because they come with their own kitchens. They come with their, they come with steaks and meatloaf and ribs and chicken and they have their own designated dietary necessities that uh, they bring, uh, which are things that we only dream about in that there's no shortage of uh, protein uh, for, uh, for them, which is fantastic. But um, that's got to be one of the reasons. So, you know, so he said, look, you know, one of the things that I have here is uh, we have this very important relationship with all of these uh, uh, foreign militaries, and it's very significant. And I've got these, you know, uh, 15, 20 year veteran special forces guys that come here, and they are, and it's not wasn't meant to be offensive in any way, but it is what it is. You know, they are being trained by our 19, 20, 21 year old kids. Mm. Uh, um, And aside from, yeah, there, there sometimes is a, is a bit of a a bit of a language barrier, not from shortage of of English speaking, because most Israelis speak English, no problem, but it's a connection with the mentality. It's a connection Mm. being able to really um, impart on them the understanding of this is what we do. This is why we do it. Mm. A lot of times, you know, uh, um, uh, it's it's a headbutting competition of here's our tactics. Well, here's our tactics, and it's just you know a pissing match of versus. Mm. You know, on the rudimentary level, ours is better than yours. It makes more sense. On a more important level, it's we don't understand what the value is and what you're teaching us because you know we're not we're not really understanding. Um, While you're doing what you're doing,
0: yeah, you know it's a it's. I I find that a really important uh, sentiment because, for example, when I did the course with you for the first time, it actually really changed my my worldview of of self-defense and Krav Maga. The, The standard Israeli answer for why do we do this is because it works. Next technique, you know, or something along those lines, and. That's i've right. really i've really struggled i struggled a lot with that you know i'm kind of doing my own thing now even though i, I i'd love to train with everyone talk to everyone and uh, you actually opened my eyes why are we doing it it's like a, a first principle scientific method approach to explaining this is why it works yes and, and it changed my teaching style completely to the detriment of my partnership of i want to teach it like this and i'm like no no we got to explain it this is north america and it could be one of the big reasons, uh, aside from questionable business practices, is why a lot of organizations really struggle to solidify their position in the North American market. Just my thoughts. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You, yeah, you can't just parachute into a new neighborhood and say, this is what we're doing now. You know, when people are at a very base level, forget for a second if there's an actual cognitive, intellectual belief as to here's why we're doing something, this is why we've got to stick to it. But just at a very... Uh, rudimentary level when uh when somebody's been doing something a certain way uh for so long and their whole belief system is based on that way you can't just come and sweep that out from underneath them Mm -hmm. you know um and when we're talking about a professional context and especially at the tip of the spear level at a such an important level where you've got you know from a military perspective some of the most important units elements that are going to do significant work and you know they are there's a lot invested into them from time and money and equipment and resources uh, to dependability of being able to achieve these these objectives um you can't go and rock that boat if it doesn't truly truly give them uh is able to replace the belief system Hmm. so that's kind of the the fiber of where it starts so there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it. And, uh, I'll share some, uh, some of that, uh, you know, as we, as we go on here, some of the really more important things that we were able to, uh, to achieve, but at the end of the day, you know, so the commander looked at me and said, listen, um, I need somebody like you here, you know, you're older, you're mature. You are not just an Israeli coming from the Israeli perspective. Um, you've got training from, from Canada, from the U S you're already very well-rounded. You, you have an appreciation for, you know, for, for tactics and for the whole bit. And you're trained, uh, Israeli trained as well. And so, um, it seems to me like this is going to be a very important combination to, uh, to bring. Um, and then of course you have the ability to, to communicate, uh, again, not from a language perspective, but you understand their mentality, you understand our mentality and maybe you can find a way to kind of bridge that. So it, um, it's more of a beneficial relationship uh, to both sides. So he made me an offer. I had, uh, two options that I can take. Option number one, because I already had my qualifications, um, uh, I can literally throw on a Mashak uh, uh t-shirt and tomorrow morning, he says, I'll sign your contract tomorrow morning. I will take two of our uh, ncos two of our instructors they will work with you for a couple of days to kind of just make sure that you're brought up to speed with all the methodologies and the tactics that there's no changes and you know in, in your in your gap that you have uh you understand what we're doing in the whole bit and that's it you get assigned to a team and you go to work right away right. we can do that or if you want um you can go through the uh, uh, Masul Hotel, through the uh, uh, Counter-Terror Unit Qualification course. Mm. Uh, um, graduate, come out with your Mashak Hotel official certification, get the certificate, get the hotel mm. pin. And incidentally, um, the Masul Hotel, it's a Mashak uh, qualification. So it's a command qualification. Mm. So where, you know... And how um, long is that? So... Um, at that time, when I was, uh, when I was, uh, getting recruited into the unit, including, including your basic infantry, basic advanced, mm-hmm. advanced infantry qualification uh, that we all go through, which is seven months, uh, long from correctly, three months of, uh, mm-hmm. basic four months of Kadem uh, of your advanced infantry training, including that it, uh, back then it was about 18 months. Today mm-hmm. it's 20 months.
0: So you threw yourself under the bus for 18 months.
1: 18 months, right? So, so again, because I already came, I already yeah. came with all basic uh, qualifications. So, um, uh, uh, so I'll get back to that momentarily, right? So, the the uh the Hotel, um, uh, 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 the the, uh, the qualification, it gives you also a morning uh, status. It's command status, right? So mm. where. Every combat soldier in the IDF, uh, even all the Special Forces ones, you come out, you're at a zero 07, uh, uh, Ova'i 07, the English translation, I believe, is a rifleman uh, a zero 07 uh, status, which was always the benchmark minimum for anything you wanted to do outside the IDF. You want to go to the Shabak, you want to go to the Imam, you want to go to any of the special police units, the whole bit, you needed at minimum to be a certified uh, combat uh, IDF uh, vet with a, uh, a zero 07 uh, status. And then a couple of years before I uh, I went um, uh, I went back, they actually changed it everywhere, right across the board. It was, you had to be a minimum of a, a zero 08. They wanted people coming in that had command capability and leadership uh, capability, were more mature, more qualified. Um, so it was a very, very significant um you know thing to add to my to my uh, my my credentials and my qualifications and with that you know as a side note on a personal level um i honestly became very enamored with the hotel uh, unit uh, from long before i even got into the unit it was it was it was at the very least a qualification a course that i want to go do that qualification course for that unit come out with that Diploma, uh, uh, which, you know, for all intents and purposes is the equivalent of a, you know, master's degree in, in counterterror warfare, um, uh, uh, that we have in Israel, um, holds its tremendous amount of value. It, it you know, uh, feeds you the entire encyclopedic knowledge base of methodology and tactics and everything related to every facet of counterterror warfare. And I always wanted, I always, you know, for all the years before I went, uh, I went back, I, I told myself, you know, I wish it was the way that I don't know, a friend of mine, a relative of mine became commander of the uh, the hotel mm-hmm. unit. And would let me just come in for you know X amount of months just to do that course, just even yeah. take that diploma and run away. I would be so grateful. And here I am now. My words actually materialize into reality. Yeah. So you so say you can do the uh, you can do the course now. I didn't have to do the whole 18 months. Again, I already came with a whole chunk of that already under my belt. The construct of the maslul, the way that it works, which is very—it's uh, pretty much identical to to any of our special units—is that once you're done, your you get accepted. You do your 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 uh, your gibush, your selection for SF, and you get accepted to the unit. Uh, we all go through our uh, again uh, basic advanced infantry uh, training, seven months. Once that done, that's done, you do your two months of your. Um, your, your unit basic training, which again is just two months of the most atrocious, atrocious yeah. hell to simply take the, you know, 80 to hundred candidates that are still there. And now bring that number down to, you know, 50 to 60, right. Of just those who really, really want to be there to that point. After your two months of, um, your unit basic training with our unit, it's another about, uh, three months of your open field tactics and navigation, open field navigation, urban navigation, and, uh, and the whole bit. And, uh, and then if I remember correctly, at that point is where the actual counter-terror warfare portion of it starts. And that is about six, seven months uh, long. Um, and that is everything that any one of our special units does, everything that uh, is, is required to qualify you as a counter-terror warfare uh, specialist. Um, and that was really the only important thing that I, that I needed. And when I was there having my interview, the team that I eventually would be assigned to, um, were already, uh, they were, they were coming up to the end of their, um, uh, uh, that whole pre counter warfare section. Mm. So I had, uh, I had a bit of time to, uh, to kind of, uh, to, to kill for all intents and purposes. So they, when he signed my contract. They sent me off to uh, uh, which was my home base for uh, for uh, uh, that little while, while, while I was waiting until I got the phone call to get on the bus and head over to Kanadam to start day one of the uh, counter warfare uh, portion. Today, on top of all that, they also have added um, Kusmakim now uh, to Al-Mashakim. So it's an additional four months. Uh, yeah, to-
0: officer course, for those who don't know, right? Yes, exactly.
1: Uh, squad, uh, squad commander course is equivalent to between an officer uh, certification. So, the L'Otal today, as significant as it was, um, you know, during my time, it, it, the Lotal went through um, about three phases of uh, of, of change uh, throughout its entire existence, and uh, you know, it started in 1974. Uh, with the birth of the Israeli uh, national counterterror doctrine, after mm-hmm. High School, uh, the Merkavah High School uh, attack, uh, and the realization that you know we will not be a, a country that is going to have to fight these ba- major wars against other countries, but we now have terrorists that are attacking us, we need counterterror capabilities, and that's where it was it was born. So the hotel back then, it fell into the hands of Sagi Matkan, um, our equivalent of uh, the Delta Force. Uh, a group of their officers were designated with the task of creating a counter-terror school for the IDF, and that became the Lutal, and it was um, uh, commanded by and um, um, uh, mostly operated by um, officers and instructors from of Matkal. on the one hand, and on the other hand, it was a home base to operators from various other special units who, for one reason or another, could not continue Uh, on with their units whether it was through uh, at a certain point of their their training of their Muslim that was high enough in the process to uh, to um, you know have them uh, qualified in in, uh, counterterrorism or uh, operational members of different units who would be injured uh, and couldn't continue operationally they would be given uh, the notar as a home base to go and be instructors and um, the the qualification course from the student at that time was six months long. So everybody that uh, A either was designated to be an instructor uh, at the uh, counterterror school at the, uh, the unit would go through a six month course. But um, uh, uh, along with that um, in, in unit uh, counter instructors for all the different special units, that's where they would be sent to go do their counterterror instructor qualification, and then they would go back to their home unit to uh, carry on as instructors. <clears throat> so at this time, the hotel the was nothing operational, no operational uh, capacity whatsoever or mandate. It was strictly a school. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when we got into the uh, the early 2000s, when really that was the phase of the Second Intifada, which really rocked Israel and uh, overwhelmed um, Israel's internal security and counter-terror capabilities—a lot started to come to the forefront there. Everything from, uh, you know, new units that had to be up, uh, put together to address various uh, uh, various new paradigm threats. Um, every settlement in Yeshuv uh, would have to have its own uh, its own uh, quick reaction uh, intervention uh, force, and that became very formalized. With um, you know, training that would be done through the IDF uh, to to bring all these uh, these um, uh, domestic uh, 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 QRF uh, units together, um, and the Lutal also uh, started to change. So um, you know, the realization came that it really doesn't make sense that you have um, a subject that is very detrimental to our survival, and it is the subject that is. Uh, uh, the number one tool that's used by all of our um, units out there, which is counterterrorism, counterterror warfare, and that it is being taught by uh, instructors who don't have that connection to the field, who don't have uh, the ability to themselves really see and understand what these methodologies and tactics look like, and and uh, be in environments where they can really um, have that that feedback and that that, that crucial understanding um and then of course they're sitting here you know teaching training uh operational uh people so it doesn't you know every other military in the world doesn't work that way when you are an instructor in the u.s military uh you know in many uh subject matters but especially one um uh, equivalent to to counterterrorism you've already come uh you know with about 10 15 20 years of of Operational service behind you. And so when you're standing there at the forefront teaching all of these uh, other units, um, you know, you already have that, uh, that command and that respect and that credibility and that knowledge base um, uh, uh, behind you. You also have the ability to really answer for what it is that you're doing. The most detrimental thing to an instructor is when a student asks, Why? Hmm. And you don't have an answer. Um, not having an answer is one thing because, believe me, there's still. Times today where I may get asked something, I say, you know what, I never really thought about that. Let me give it some thought, and I'll get back to you on that, right? But in an overall capacity, in your area of specialty, your subject matter expertise, when you're telling somebody this is how you're going to enter a, a room, and they ask, well, what about this or what about that, and you can't give an answer, your answer doesn't make sense, or your answer is the go-to answer, you know, this this is what the entire tactical world rides on, as far as uh, um, addressing or countering a student asking them why it mm. is because it's what we've always been doing. That's the classic, not, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you hear that answer, turn around, run away. All right. Mm. Uh, if a surgeon can't tell you, this is why I'm about to cut into your brain and do this. If their answer is, well, because that's the way we've always been doing it. getting mm. near my brain with a scalpel buddy. Sorry. All right. And there's no less importance and significance in the world of, of, of counterterror warfare and in, 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 in special operations. Yeah, so, It's
0: interesting. Like, um, I think in the <coughs> counterterrorism world, people very much appreciate that uh, most of my experience is teaching civilians and, and uh, the students that stick around. They love that approach. So I'm explaining the why, the how, so that they can understand. And, and sort of my uh, explanation for that is. The honest truth is that most of my students are not going to stick around past three months, so they won't actually develop the fundamental skills they really need. So if they don't understand the why and the tactics as a base level, those techniques they learned are probably useless to them. Um, Occasionally, you'll get a student who comes in who has watched too much internet or who's been indoctrinated by traditional martial arts, and they're like, why are you talking so much in a beginner class I want to do? And people have really been indoctrinated in many ways, uh, at least in the civilian world, to not not think like that to the detriment of the martial arts world. You see, in, in the in the jiu-jitsu world, uh, are you familiar with John Danaher at all?
1: Uh, no, unfortunately
0: I'm not. Yeah, so he's, he's, uh, he used to be a ph- philosophy professor at uh, Columbia U. He's now a uh, jiu-jitsu instructor under henzo he's a black belt under Henzo Gracie. Right. And he has like stormed the jiu-jitsu world in the last five, six years because his approach is very much a a philosophical why what's the principles to the detriment of the Gracie's who are pissed off because they're seeing the results that he's producing in his students, which is champion after champion after champion and, you know, changing, I think, you know, he has a lot of podcasts out there. He's done with like Joe Rogan, et cetera. It's, it's a very, when you see that the, the teaching, the why and the understanding gets better overall results, right. The traditional way of doing it, you know, which is most people, they get very annoyed. <laughs>
1: 100%. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh it's very fascinating. So, you know, uh, I'll tell you, like, for example, on that, on that topic, probably the most, um, uh, I don't know what I'm looking for, but the most, the most, uh, important lesson that I ever got, um, on this subject, uh, it's got to do, it's got to do with, uh, with our tactics, specifically our room entry tactics. Cause that's where we really, really stand out is how we do things in Israel. Mm. Um, everybody runs into, uh, you know, from the hallway, they run through the doorway into the room and, uh, take care of business. Uh, once they're in there and in Israel, we like to hang out on the doorway and do yeah. everything in the doorway. Right. And, um, this is the one thing where consistently, consistently, every single foreign unit that I would have. You know, when I when I make references to, to different, um, uh, I guess, uh, global geographies and countries and, and units and stuff, I always reference only Israel and uh, the U.S. And the reason for that is because uh, we do things very differently than them. And the U.S. Uh, essentially has trained every other special operation unit in the world. Everybody else pretty much to a huge extent does what the US does. So just as far as the, you know, the actual educational uh, methodological uh, um, uh, standing, those are normally my, my comparative references is those two countries. And so um, my biggest fight, anytime I would have any of these foreigners that come in is we don't understand why you guys are, you know, standing on the doorway and and searching or, or fighting from there. You know, what about this fatal funnel thing, mm-hmm. which is the biggest myth in existence this concept of fatal funnel right but kick, fatal kick the door in,
0: tunnel, in and run in in single file line right <laughs>
1: run, uh, run right in there exactly yeah. uh if you don't do it that way then you get shot interesting okay <clears throat> so uh we had um when israel was put together we were put together militarily by the uh, by the british uh and then by uh, by the us and when we got into the 80s and we really started to tried to develop and to research and to explore the best tactics and methodologies for counterterror warfare. This is where Israel was starting to hit on a regular basis with everything from, you know, from active uh, shooting, active terror attacks in, in, in schools and uh, in, in settlements, uh, hostage situations, um, all of the real uh, counter-terror warfare Um, situations which would call for those methodologies and tactics would would, you know they really start to happen into the 80s and so we were researching a lot um, the the IDF. Seragat Matkan were again our equivalent to the uh, Delta unit at that time um, well still till today but that time they were the ones that took the uh, the reins at uh, trying to develop our tactics and they specifically then uh, went to Delta, U.S. Delta, and uh, uh, trained with them and explored what they do for room entries. And the tactics back then that uh, everybody was using, uh, developed by Delta and by the SAS, which everybody was uh, was using, was uh, a four-man entry with the principle of dominating the entire room from a 360-degree um, uh, uh, radius as quickly as possible, meaning... One and two, first ones in, they immediately run to the short corners and as fast as possible get to the long corners, three and four, uh, right behind them, take the uh, short corners. Then in theory, you end up with a guy on each corner. So you've got the entire room dominated uh, from a 360 degree uh, radius, which again, in theory, makes complete sense because you've got full domination of the the room and uh, you can overwhelm a threat or threats in the room.
0: And that's actually how uh, I was infantry, not not anything special the that's what we were taught if we're storming a building, so I'm not sure, sure. and that was like uh, was ten years ago now, so I don't know how it's changed or if the if at that time the counterterrorism were doing it different, so it's interesting to see the evolution
1: yes, so so the uh, the evolution right, what happened was we took that kind um, at that time they took it, so hey, it makes a hundred percent sense. And all these other units are using it around the world so this has to be what works and so uh that's what they start teaching to all of our units and you know theory versus versus practice when you actually have a variable that is designed to defeat what you're doing this is the problem is that when you don't have an entity that you that's trying to oppose you and go beyond that try to defeat what you're doing you will never know you know how valid what you're doing actually actually is. It's the difference between getting into, you know, uh, a ring or an octagon with a uh, with a trained fighter who can counter everything that you're doing and is going to try to defeat you or beating up a punching bag. You can do whatever you want in that bag and it's unchecked and, you know, kick it, punch it, do all the fancy stuff. Um, in theory, you're, you're a champion, sure. When our unit started to deploy that tactic out in the field, um, it would never work. It would never work. One and two would get on the uh, the doorways, they're all in the stack. And as soon as one would go to take a step into that room, which for us in Israel, the norm is that we have ambushes waiting for us in, in the majority of all of the buildings and the rooms that we enter, <laughs> whether it is uh, an IED or whether it is a terrorist under a bed, in a fridge, uh, in an attic opening right above the other doorway. And when you set into that room, you're taking rounds. And in any every predicament, where there were ambushes which is really the only thing that matters when you're going in crossing that threshold the most um detrimental thing and the thing that pushes your capabilities to the absolute edge of that envelope is whether or not you're taking an ambush if you don't take an ambush if a threat jumps out of that room before you reach that doorway it doesn't make a difference but you're not doing a room entry right now you're fighting in a hallway if you get into that room effectively and the threat materializes where you identify or a threat begins to engage you when you're already in that room you are now fighting in an open space it is contained in smaller but that is not a room entry engagement Mm -hmm. it's a world of a difference when you are on that threshold and you have to cross from a known through uh, a threshold to an unknown and you engage at that point because there's too many variables you're contending with from your ability to perceive the threat and be able to engage it in time. Where conversely, the threat knows where you are the moment that you make your existence known in that, in that, uh, in that threshold. So uh, the threat's got far less uh, work to do and it's contending with far less adverse human factors than you are. And when you can't figure out what's going on and you're under stress and you go into shock, it's the human in you that's always going to govern before the special operator, no matter what. So our guys would hit the uh, the doorways and they would go to storm as quickly as they can. And one or even one and two would suddenly get engaged on a doorway. And there doesn't exist taking any corners because when you're taking rounds, you are not moving. You are not running anywhere. You're not going any corners. You right now are contending with this uh, dump of all this adverse physiological human factor um, element. You're trying to pair that up with your tactical capabilities and you're trying to survive. And what everybody would do is A, they would either get stuck on that doorway, they would not move, or they would suck right back to their most natural perceived point of cover, which is right outside that doorway, that that wall. Mm. Whether it's cover or not is irrelevant, that's a different topic. Whether it's cover or it's concealment, they both offer you certain things that nothing gives you when bullets are flying at you. And this became uh, systematic. It simply would not work. So they said, Mm. okay, we're not succeeding here. We're not succeeding. We're ending up with uh, dead soldiers on the doorway, uh, soldiers that are injured to the point that the fight now gets, the mission gets completely discombobulated. Um, It's not working. So how do we uh, mitigate that? So the thinking was, well, maybe we gotta tighten things up, become quicker. So instead of trying to get number one and two to rush to the long corners, um, let's just focus on revamping the technique now where one and two go in, they just take the short corners. And then three and four enter and stay in line with them. Mm. Theory, again, sounded a lot more evolved. Would never happen because the whole point, again, is that the moment that you enter that room, you're taking rounds, your focus now is on trying to survive and trying to become effective at that engagement. Nobody is moving anywhere. Nobody is taking any corners. doesn't exist. There's no such thing. So that is where the Israeli ingenuity came in. They said, okay, so none of this is working. Let's stick to instincts and intuition here. What are the guys doing? They're stopping, number one, because it is ludicrous to think that when somebody is shooting at you, especially when it's an uncontrolled environment and you're having hindrances with your perception of of that threat, of where it is, of how effectively to engage it, you're not gonna move towards it. You're not moving anywhere. Instinct is to either stop and shoot, engage, which is the correct answer, or it's to get the hell out of there. So Mm -hmm. let's work with that. If the natural point of perceived cover is that doorway, that threshold right behind it, we start to work on that. And that is where the, uh, uh, um, the creation of our fighting from the, uh, from the, uh, uh, the, the threshold uh, came and instantaneously our survivability and success ratios in the fee- in the field, in all of these engagements that have to do with entries, just compounded drastically. So um people don't know this and it's funny when i hear people arguing about you know israeli limited penetrations is what's been call, coined in the US fighting from the threshold whatever you want to call it or the you know rest of the world of the american uh, you know uh, 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 storm right in and when i see this debate i think about the nonsense behind it because what they have to understand, if they understood the history, they would understand that our method is not our method. It is the, uh, again, what I call the the American or the rest of the world, the global method, entry method, that was put through the filter of reality to the most detrimental measure. And it's evolution of how to become more effective is what the Israeli method is.
0: Mm. It's, it's, so, uh, it's very much like adapting. like. When I went, in, I actually came in. You know, it was 2009, 2011 kind of thing, and they were always talking about, oh well, we completely changed our tactics after Lebanon two because it didn't go so well. And then, in the 10 years from then to now, they changed it again. Now compare that to, let's say, the Canadian military, where they're still teaching like 1970s hand-to-hand combat. There's, I saw an article yesterday. They're fighting over replacing the Browning pistol, and Glock is really pissed. Like, the, a lot of I find the Israelis find success in this because they're willing to change. Even though Israelis have massive egos, they still allow for changing and adapting at a rapid pace, as compared to a westernized military, which is this is how it's done. The general is you know forty-year veteran refuses to change anything, and then they get stuck.
1: One hundred percent. We we're lucky. I mean, there is on the one hand the fact that we are a much smaller country with a smaller you know security and military apparatus and potentially some less bureaucracy to go through in order to make things happen and change that definitely is a factor that is has to be taken into consideration to what degree i don't know but i know that is a factor there um uh and on the other hand it is also the fact that you know our reason for survival in israel is our military it's our tactics Counter warfare capabilities. It's our security uh, resources. And so it's not something that we mess around with. This is not a luxury where we can, you know, have a failure in some other foreign land. And if it doesn't work, you know, just call everybody back home. We'll figure it out and then maybe we'll go back. You know, Mm. we have nowhere to go. So we have to immediately look at things that don't work and understand why. And things move very quick for us. You know, one of my tasks when I was in the unit was. I had several tasks, but one of them I was assigned to the Chief Instruction uh, uh, section of the unit. And my tasking there uh, was to um, maintain a handle and assessment of all of our operational tactics um, and how they're doing in the field. And the moment that there would be a compromise, um, I would have the responsibility to right away start to uh, revamp the tactics to fix them up. we would have whether it's situations such as I uh, remember the one of the things that occurred. Um, you know, we have a certain uh, um, even in the special units capacity. Our foundation is infantry uh, for all the ground forces, um, and this is because. In big wars, we work in tandem with the infantry. So we have to work in the same formations when we get to the specialty sections. So in Lebanon, for example, our unit was uh, assigned to the different um, infantry uh, battalions. Move in with the incursion with the infantry battalions and once we got to the urbanized areas, um, the infantry battalions would act as uh, security and our unit would go in and clear all the uh, all the uh, structures. So we have a specific uh, uh, formation for, for ground, uh, movement. And I remember the day in, uh, I think it was 2008, uh, that, um, it became compromised. Uh, we had a team from Givati, uh, from their special unit that was out in the field and, uh, they were moving in, uh, this specific, uh, uh, formation, um, and they came under attack and they right away reacted in the way this formation is designed to to react, if you, is they got flanked specifically, um, and they reacted in, the, in a certain response that the formation is designed to uh, to, uh, 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 to to provide. And they got ambushed and flanked even by that reaction, as if that reaction, it was anticipated by this Hamas cell that attacked them. And so we knew right away that there was a compromise in the tactic. And so our responsibility was to immediately uh, uh, change Change this whole uh, tactic up, and when these things happen, it is instantaneous. I would get the orders. I would sit down with the commanders of the different units that uh, that would experience the uh, the, uh, the the failure in the field, and right away we would go to work in uh, redesigning the uh, the new tactic. If it was a tactic at that time, it would get sent up for approvals immediately. Once it was approved, it gets turn to a lesson plan and we immediately start to, uh, to, uh, to put it out there, uh, from within the school to all the different units. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, uh, it was, it was fantastic to be in an environment and in a, in an organization. that would move that quickly when we're talking about life-saving change that have to be done.
0: Yeah. Now I, I may have my facts wrong. I'm sure you'll correct them. Um, the similar mentality. So like in Canada, The Moncton shooting, one of the issues uh, was that the police did not update their tactics or weaponry. And uh, were you involved in the testimony to get the carbines? uh, And sort of what was the logic behind that? Because, I mean, it's obvious to us, but the Canadian public and and North American public uh, is constantly complaining about the, the, quote, militarization of the police, which is, is not... It's, it's not a great argument when you actually really understand things. So maybe, you know, taking that Israeli mentality to Canada, explain that sort of situation and, sure. and that uh, where the public has it wrong, I guess.
1: <laughs> In every way they have it wrong. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'll start very quickly with just my two cents on the concept of militarization of police. It's such mm-hmm. an absurd notion because the complexity of policing is... You have to be everything. You have to be everything from a, from a, you know a social worker, right up to a special operations you know battle hardened combat capable operator and everything else in between that. Um, when it is time to speak to an individual who's suffering from a mental crisis or emotional event, uh, or they're intoxicated and they're going crazy and they're not compliant and this and that. You know, you have to be at that level appropriately with what you say and what your objective is, which is to try to calm them down, de-escalate, control them, take them to custody, whatever the case is. You know, you should not be coming in and saying, listen, you either do this or you don't. If you don't, I'm not, you know, hit you with my baton or tase you or, or who knows what, right? And, and, and that has to be a faction of policing. However, when you have an active killer running around a school or a community murdering people, Um, when you as a police officer, uh, you're doing a a, a random traffic stop, not random, but what I was looking for is a a conventional, you know, routine traffic stop and, uh, that driver or the occupants of the vehicle suddenly jump out and are shooting at you. You cannot be a social worker. You cannot even be a police officer in that moment in time. That happens to be the uniform that you're wearing, but you want to survive that you have to play the role that is required to be able to counter, to address the threat based on what the threat is giving you and what the threat is deciding you have now been sucked into. Um, And that is a combat role. And that's where you need to be. In mind, in heart, in soul, in physicality, and in tactics. You will not defeat violence that is trying to kill with talking or, you know, this de-escalation concept that everybody is all over these days Mm. uh, it simply doesn't work. So you cannot demilitarize the military aspects or requirements of policing. Um, It's like telling the firefighter, you know, your fire hose is too intimidating. So you are no longer allowed to go and fight house fires with a fire hose, go and use a, uh, you know, a water gun or a fire extinguisher or we don't know what. It's the exact same logic, it's absurd. That's number one. Um, number two, as far as Moncton, as far as what you've referenced uh, with Moncton, uh, so uh, I was involved with the uh, post investigative aspect uh, to it, which contributed to the uh, the rollout of the carbines. Um, and it was within my role uh, with the Canadian Tactical Officers Association (CTOA) where I'm uh, I'm the appointed managing director, and we were contacted by. I don't remember the name uh, of the organization right now, but it was an equivalent federal Canadian body to uh, the health and safety investigative body that was uh, tasked with um, investigating the aftermath and seeing whether um, the RCMP had failed its officers with whether it was tactics, training or equipment. (laughs) And um, I remember uh, the interview with this investigator, Uh, It was long. We were about four or five hours uh, um, uh, in discussions. And um, when it came to tactics, you know, he touched up on is there, uh, in your opinion, um, a necessity for training active shooter intervention in open environments, open terrain environments? Um, Is that where there may have been a failure? And the short question is, is yes, because here's a prime example. An active shooter is not necessarily someone who just walks into an enclosed building. Um, so you might be in a predicament where you're trying to uh, identify and engage this active shooter in a town, in a city setting. However, that doesn't mean that still there's you know, no issues with the tactics, the methodology, the SOPs that govern how you're going to, uh, to address that threat. Um, there's still some stuff that needs to be worked on from that perspective. Um, and then a lot of it would revert back to weaponry, mm. whether you know the tools were problematic. And that's a yes and no question. Um, uh, you cannot you cannot sit there and talk about weapons and tools if you don't first have the proper tactics and methodology and procedures in place. because you can have an RPG on your shoulder to take out an active shooter. If your tactics methodology and SOPs are effective, your RPG will never come into play uh, appropriately and at the right time, in the right context and the right way to mitigate that situation. So it is definitely in my opinion essential that you know your patrol officers do have access to uh, carbines um, because they need the maximum round capacity. They need the ability to um, engage a target Uh, quicker. And if you have a distance and you're relying on a close range tool, then you're adding seconds to that threat's ability to continue to kill, to maneuver, to outskill you, to to do things. So if we can impact that threat at a distance, we're in a better place. Um, And then yes, the ability also to mitigate potential things like uh, hard plates and body armor that are a lot of threats—I um, won't say a lot, enough threats have already, um, you know, come to engagements against police with here in North America. Mm. Um, so they're all factors that are interrelated and that are uh, important.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's like the time uh, some genius thought it would be a great idea to take uh, sidearms from the CBSA at the border, and that lasted all of a few years, and then they got them right back. <laughs> You of know, it's, uh,
1: Listen, it's part of the trade. You know, what do you want? It's uh, it's the way that it goes. It's the bad guys that decide what the good guys are going to need. It doesn't yeah. work the other way ground. It'd be nice to live in a world without guns, but guns exist, and bad guys have them, so we need them too. That's it. It's the way that it goes.
0: Yeah. So I mean, you're very much oh part of what you do sometimes is PR for for police. And uh, aside from misinformed public, which we both uh, I would say agree that they're heavily misinformed, there is a PR problem in some ways with how police and military are perceived in north america i know there's a lot of uh, outside uh, factors probably being paid by china sort of to create a social problem that shouldn't exist but sure. if we were to try to create a better image for the police and military how do you think that might look
1: i think it's going to come from kind of uh for right now just off the cuff thinking, it's a double pronged approach: one side on the police side, and another side on the public side. Um, uh, number one, yes, there definitely are some things in policing that uh, bite police in the ass, um, as far as uh, procedures, as far as uh, you know, uh, checks and uh, um, uh, checks in place to, to to make sure that policing is accountable um, for what it does. There's officers out there that, uh, don't belong in a uniform. hundred percent. Is it a systematic problem? No. Is it the norm? No, it's not even the majority. Um, but it is a problem. It all takes is one bad incident, one bad, uh, officer, one bad word, one bad move. And thanks to the media, it's everywhere. And the public who, is busy with public related stuff, all of a sudden, all they know policing is that one tiny isolated variable that to them now is all policing. Mm. So, you know, you have a multitude of things that, uh, that uh, can be put out there. Um, Police officers are humans and you got bad police officers. You do have bad humans out there in uniforms, no questions about it. I've known, Mm. I've known, you know, I've had some experiences here and there with, uh, with some myself. Um, I've known of uh, um, certain officers who were not good people. When they put a uniform on, you never know it. Um, they'd be able to have that line of, you know, they're doing their job and uh, and that's it. They may not have been happy people and, and the whole bit, but um, they wouldn't mix those two, uh, those two worlds. Uh, and then you do just have bad people out there who happen to be police officers who do bad things. No questions about it. That is a, a tiny percentage within this already tiny percentage of, of bad policing. I think a bigger problem is policing has been turned into Play-Doh and everybody's trying to mold it into you know, something to fit what the narrative is or what the perception is that police officers are expected to do a hell of a lot more than they can do as hmm. people and as professionals and um you know it's next to impossible you know you have to pick a specialization become good at it and that is how you become good at something and and deliver good results when you're expected to be an expert in so many different facets you're simply your jack of all trades and an expert at none and that inherently already brings problems to the table with this whole perception from the public, which is policing is overbearing and it's militarized, and why you know the fists and the weapons and the this and the that, what you're essentially doing is, you know, you're saying okay, um, you're going to be in a police uniform, but you have to not be a violent person. You got to have no propensity for violence. You have to not be aggressive. You have to be kind. You have to this. You have to that. You're you're already taking away a lot of all of the ingredients that are required to contend with a violent situation. Mm. And so you've got, you know, uh, in the 80s and the 90s, people who were in police uniforms were people who you'd expect to be in police uniforms. These People would walk into bar fights and no problem, they can handle themselves. Now you got police officers that can't. They don't have the physical composure behind them. They don't have the physical disposition behind them. They don't have the tactic, tactical support behind them. They don't have the fighting capabilities um, that the fight's been taken out of policing. So when you now have a person is resisting a police officer, what do you think is going to happen? You know, take your average civilian off the street and throw them into the, uh, into the octagon to go and fight a trained MMA fighter. What is going to happen to that person? And when you tell them, listen, you better survive this. They're going to do the craziest of things to try to, to survive. So, um, if you do not bring police officers to a capability of an actual capability not uh you know they did a couple hours of this at the academy so they get the check mark because that means nothing an actual capability of being able to mitigate violence with their head with their mouth with their fists with their feet with their tools you're going to have a big blunder of a situation when these officers encounter violence it's it's the only expected result Hmm. um and so you got to have a militarization of policing it doesn't mean that you're turning them into these rogue mercenary, you know, uh, law-breaking uh, bad people. It's not gonna do with it. My whole world has been about violence. Uh, you know, my, 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 my whole passion extracurricularly was all martial arts and fighting, you know, for 40 years. My professional background is 25 years of tactics and operations and and, and shooting and and everything related to violence. I'll tell you right now, I love life. I love people. I love animals. I I, I I hate seeing people get hurt. I hate seeing violence being used arbitrarily and unnecessarily. Um, I'm involved in any conflict with another human. I look for uh, a way to reach an amicable point with that person because that's just what's natural to me. My whole passion for the science of violence has never made me angry has never you know uh, given me a temper has never made me sure fused has never uh, made me say you know what i feel like going being someone up today has never made me for the ever abuse any authority i've ever been given i've worn a lot of uniforms a lot of badges a lot of uh, oaths to uh, serve and protect in, in three different countries and i have never once even when i could get away with it if i wanted to never once abused that authority the authority is a byproduct i've never once abused that 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 trust and that relationship with with people I was dealing with. When people Mm. tried to hurt me, I would do what I had to do. You know, I do not like anybody appreciate being spat at and and, and being threatened and and, and all this stuff, but I have never once become arbitrarily violent because I have this this background of violence. It is not a complicated thing to to achieve. Quite frankly, the more adept a person is at fighting, at shooting, at tactics, the more comfort they have, the, the better they are in that world, the more integrated they are with understanding violence and being able to navigate through it, the more calm they are in these mm. bad situations. And the more calm you are, the better decision-making uh, you're, gonna, you're gonna have. Um, and, and quite frankly, a lot of these situations will be resolved you know, with a lot less force if you've got an officer who is comfortable in that moment of uh, of, of violence and, and fighting and, and, and whatever the uh, the case is, mm. so um, the last point on that, uh, the public's responsibility. The public needs to mind their own business. The public needs to go about being you know good citizens, not break the law. And when they see something that isn't palatable to them, because at the end of the day, it's never palatable to see two humans in in conflict. It's never palatable to see somebody taking a beating. And the m- majority of every single situation that we see out there on YouTube on the news of a bad police incident um, is a police officer reacting to what a subject is doing and a police officer professionally trying to mitigate that and if it is a subject that is being punched by a police officer hit with a baton or even shot that is what that professional um, uh, engagement called for Um, And then, of course, the problem is that we only ever see one side of the situation. For some reason, all these videos only start recording. You know, when the officer has now tried everything and has to draw his or her weapon and use it. Right. Um, And uh, and and that's it. The public, obviously, they don't have an appreciation for what it is to put your hands on a person. Try to control them when they're not going to let you. I've been in situations i'm a big strong guy and I, and I and i know how to navigate with tactics and control in the whole bit and i've had situations where i've had little subjects that i had one hell of a time trying to control when a human doesn't let you control them you're not controlling them so the public has to have an appreciation understanding of all that they're not going to go barge into some hospital and you know start to criticize a brain surgeon who's doing things in whatever way because they don't understand it mm-hmm. they got to that same respect for law enforcement law enforcement do its thing. Um, and, and conversely, again, the law enforcement community does have to stand up more and uh, be a lot more uh, accountable for when it does things wrong and uh, and uh, be a lot harsher on its members who really don't belong in that uniform. Hmm. That's my two cents on it.
0: Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. In it. Most used to force expert policing or otherwise they consistently say, the same thing, one way or another, is that if if police have better training, better are and are more confident in, in the ability to deal with it, they're they're less violent. Um, the trend right now is uh, politicians and uh, and youth of force experts seem to be pushing towards policing officers getting blue belt or higher in uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, from a, a fine like I I tend to agree with that as far as if you're going to arrest someone, you need to know how to effectively control, but it creates a logistical issue with to get a good blue belt. It's about two years consistent training. Now I was doing a, uh, I did a podcast with uh, Sebastian uh, Lavoie the other day. He used to run ERT in Vancouver and he was like, I want people to be purple belt or higher Um, because, you know, the the saying black belt on the street is, is less in conflict. Um, And when I'm talking to my students, I'm saying it's it's your guys' fault because you're not telling the politicians. I want you to spend the money on training, because we all know the training gets cut. They're forced to do all this stuff. Uh, You know, when I talk to RCMP officers, why don't you do the training? Because they don't want to do it on their own time, on their own dime, and then they're worried about uh, legal ramifications if they've learned something that isn't approved. Even though a lot of the approved stuff is not. Practically, like I had a student go through RCMP Depot and they're teaching, you know, wrist locks. And, you know, I'm like, wrist locks from arrest only work if you use pain compliance to get them to move. If they don't want to do it, it's not going to work. And I showed him some techniques, which would probably be frowned upon if, uh, if the media saw it. But he's like, oh, my God, that works immediately. I'm like, yeah, you, you have to, you know, much of what you taught, you got to make them comply. Uh, otherwise, they're not going to do it. So, course. what are your thoughts on that uh, that training? Uh, before uh, I know you have to probably go soon.
1: So yeah, uh, I've got about I don't know, about fifteen minutes. Uh, i am going to go uh, pick up uh, kids from camp.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we'll, we'll cram that uh, this, and then I want to talk about uh, your organization, CT Seven Hundred Seven.
1: Yeah, you know, real quick, my my thoughts on that are again. Uh, I've seen, you know, all the different articles and headlines of, you know, this uh, Bluebell Jiu-Jitsu for policing. It's fantastic. Jiu-Jitsu is not the be-all and-all answer, the magical wand. Police officers need to be trained. That's it. They need to be trained. I've seen enough guys out there who, you know, come from karate backgrounds and whatever other backgrounds who were, were fine and, and handled themselves uh, well. Um, jiu definitely addresses a, a big chunk of the type of interaction that occurs between uh, police officers and and subjects, Uh, a lot of rudimentary grabbing and and more than enough times, not every time, but more than enough times, it goes down to the ground, yes. But there's still, there's a lot, there's still a lot more. There isn't a single system out there, single martial arts system out there that is gonna give you 100% of a solution or answer to to everything. Um, So there's more than just uh, jujitsu. But again, at the end of the day, it's it's the concept of police officers are not trained enough. Period. The training that police officers receive is plain and simple, nothing more than uh, in introductory education for a check mark to get a certificate to be certified. So in court, they can say the officer was trained. Okay, but then you having all of these, you know, uh, explosive battles that go on the court phase and in inquest and beyond that and on the field, because it's proof that a lot of these skills are not ingrained in the officers to the point of being proficient experts at what they're doing. I think that we would all agree that, again, and I, I use this example a lot, but if um, if I was a medical doctor, if I was a surgeon, heart surgeon, a brain surgeon, and the extent of my qualification and training was, you know, uh, just for the sake of a check mark, and you know, be questionable as to how effectively I can actually handle a scalpel and, and get the job done. Not a single person would would be in agreement to letting me continue on in that profession. Um, so, you know, the whole uh, argument from the policing side is there's just not enough time and not enough budgets. Well, if you mandate it. It's forced to be. Then there will be. It's the way that it always works. Plain and simple. You can't sit there and 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 decide that you know academy of three months and another additional you know two to three months on top of that for your initial qualifications as a police officer to know how to fight, to know how to shoot a gun, shoot another person under stress, in a real situation, is enough. That's absurd. It is just absurd. And then put the onus on the policing community and the po- individual police officer. Making them liable when things don't go uh, don't go well in the application in the street. So, any training, all the training, continued training. I, I, you know, yes, I, I, I know of you know the fact that many police officers don't want to go and train on their on their own time. <clears throat> I can make an argument for that. I can understand that, being from both sides of the fence, as an instructor and as you know, as, as an officer, as an operator, as an as an end uh, um, uh, user um, perspective. You want to live too, and you've got your family, and you've got all these other things in life. And you know what? When you're doing X amount of shifts, twelve-hour shifts, you know, you're 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 tired, and you want to catch up on rest and this and that. And, and, and I get that. I personally believe that there has to be a schedule. That takes into account on a regular basis Um, the operational side of it the shift work and then x amount of days per month at least that is mandated training and that's part of it all and that's it and that's the package if the standard for policing is up here if the um uh the detriment of failure you know is is up here then uh policing has to be revamped with how it is preparing its officers on a mandated level, not an expectation for officers to go on their own and become, you know, proficient. There's there's very few out there that are like that because they go into policing with these backgrounds already and it's their passion. I know of many police officers who want to be at that level. They want to be good and they do go and train, you know. Um, uh, They do what they can, but, you know, their level still is not maybe at uh, uh, the highest of levels. Um, None of that should be a thing. Policing should be, this is the line, and everybody is brought up to, to a standard. Also, none of this, you know, dropping the bar in order to make the officer pass. Mm-hmm. I've seen too much of that uh, right. as well. Um, you know, I uh, I was on a tactical team here in Ontario, a nuclear tactical team, and every five weeks we would have mandated training. <laughs> um, every shift we would have two hours and we'd have to be in the gym working out. And that was part of the agreement because every six months we would have to pass the provincial tactical officer uh, a fitness test in order to maintain our tactical officer status and qualification and be able to, uh, to work. But I remember one time we were at a training session. Uh, we were on the range, a big open field scenario. The instructors uh, set up for us. It was a partner drill. And it included a bunch of everything. It included uh, um, engagements from long range, where we would then have to kind of close, going from cover to cover, so we'd be using our open field uh, tactics. And then we get to uh, to a close proximity to the uh, to the threat. We would have to um, initiate a uh, high risk uh, arrest. But you have a you, you had a multitude of targets that you'd have to engage throughout this entire duration of the scenario. And I remember um, two of the guys who were paired up. Uh, never thought very highly of them to begin with. And as these guys would fall to the example of, you know, I gave earlier about the fact that there's some people in uniform that do not belong in this uniform, but that's a different topic. Um, uh, they did the drill, they came back and they were laughing about how uh, they accidentally shot uh, one of the uh, no shoot civilian targets. And you know, uh, that stuff pisses me off to no end. I mean, number one is, is the fact that you shot a civilian target. Number two, you're actually making a joke of it. Um, mm-hmm. This is the kind of crap that, that undermines and completely decimates those of us who are concerned about the professionalism of our, of our, of our industry. Um, and then with that as well, you know, this is a training environment you are under nothing that would relate to the stresses and the variables of real life. And you have been given this C8, you know, M4 uh, uh, platform of a weapon along with authority to go and, and, and use it against another human being. Um, and, you know, we went through a three month tactical qualification course. And again, every five weeks we're training and you're missing the targets and you're hitting the wrong targets. What kind of absurdity is that? Because if this was not a scenario, if tomorrow we had an actual attack and we had to, to uh, um, you know, face such a scenario, you wouldn't be able to hit. You'd hit one of the employees of the plant, a fellow officer or an innocent person uh, walking by in the neighborhood. I mean, mind-boggling to me. And that's, that's part of that you know, element that I talked about that needs to be addressed on the, on the, uh, on the uh, administrative side of it, on the policing side or whatever the, uh, the authoritative uh, the entity is. Um, to weed out those that are not there for the best interest of of the profession. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so this is a problem. It's an ongoing problem. And I believe that it absolutely 100% is solvable, but not enough people in decision-making on all fronts, including government, politicians, a whole bit, you know, care to put it at the forefront. Mm -hmm. Um, There's solutions for everything. There happens to be magical solutions for everything all of a sudden when it's other things related to society. You know, we've got millions of dollars to spend on here. We've got billions to send over to that country. We've got this, we've got that. So don't come and say, you know, this thing that's so important. Uh, we just don't have the resources and the abilities. I don't buy that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, yeah corruption everywhere, I think, and ego is a big factor for that. Now, uh, real quick before we have to pick up the kids, sure. coming down to training we both believe it's what people need, and you created your own uh, CT-707 training organization. Now, it originally started with just teaching Krav Maga, uh, at least from my experience, and then you, I see you've updated your website finally, <laughs> and uh, you have all these lists of uh, all the extensive training to police, law enforcement, uh, Krav Maga that you now offer. Uh, so, tell me about uh, your organization.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, so uh, CT 707 was my uh, uh, my organization that I started when I came back to North America after my service in uh, 2010. Uh, CT stands for counterterror. Um, 707 is my unit designation number. Right. So all of our units, they're officially named by numbers. They have identifying numbers. My unit was Unit 707, uh, the counterterror unit. Um, so of course, you know my 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 background, my passion. Um, Counter warfare and everything that falls under that umbrella, and so I named my organization based on kind of my my uh, my, uh, my tribute, my homage to you know to my uh, where where I became a specialist in that in that, uh, in that trade craft. Um, I've always done more than just kab Maga. I actually uh, you know it was kind of a uh, little flipped around. I used to do more of shooting and tactics and, and stuff like that when i uh I started my organization in 2010 one of the things that i wanted to do was to counter all the bad krav nonsense that's out there um like with every martial art there's a lot of nonsense out there krav i think has more nonsense though uh maybe it's because it's the youngest of all the systems out there you know it's very popular yes um the the, the politics that the nonsense goes on in martial arts, is the same everywhere, but we seem to have a lot more of um, issues in Krav that are kind of unique to Krav, uh, ranging from so many different types of Krav out there, so many different organizations and methodologies and systems, and so many claims. Instructors, you know, claiming to have been Special Forces members and, and some claims even just far more exuberant nonsensical, you know, uh, I won't mention names for the sake of just kind of keeping things clean here, but, you know, instructors with all these stories of, uh, you know, having been in ramble ambushes and survived uh, against thousands of, uh, of uh, terrorist attackers and, and uh, were, were asked by the IDF to revamp the Krav Maga program and uh, came up with this Krav Maga program It became the, the uh, true Krav program for the elite special forces of the IDF that nobody knows about and blah, 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 blah. And all this crap, you know, and I, my, my position is funny because at, uh, the, uh, at the unit, when I was serving, um, we do everything. You know, so in addition, to all of our regular um, operational side and teaching uh, the units, qualifying all of our special uh, 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 forces units all across the IDF, we do everything. And, and uh, I would have on two regular of a basis, units that would come from different countries. And uh, I was in charge of training them in counterterror warfare and shooting and in uh, Kav Maga. And so many times, it would just get so nauseating to me, you know, the questions about, well, what about this instructor? What about that Krav system? You know, we had a guy come in and train us uh, at our unit uh, back in whatever country, and uh, he claims this and that, Special Forces IDF, and this is the Krav Maga system that you guys apparently use, and it has nothing to do with Krav, and it is all BS, and I would just, I would, I would, I would, have to contend with that and i would experience that uh too often you know so i wanted to do my part on setting things straight with real krav maga authentic krav maga and the way that we do club in in our special forces what we do at the uh, at uh, the counter-terror school is very different from the krav and the rest of the idf as well and our instructors come from a different uh, um, uh, lineage of uh, qualification certification requirement as well Um, But that was kind of my goal. So I started my certification uh, program, uh, my uh, Krav Instructor Certification Program, which is based on my system. My system, yes, it is club Maga. And I do call it club Maga, but it's based on all the other facets of my background as well. My martial arts background, you know, I've been very, very um, fortunate to have followed the track that I have in life between Club Maga Jiu and, and Filipino martial arts and American Kenpo Karate and I've had instructors in all these different um, uh, uh, systems as well that were just geniuses and so well versed when it came to the um, the realities and the science of uh, of uh, you know conflict and, and fighting and I picked up so much and that coupled with my operational experience and all my service experience um, you know as a law enforcement officer as a special uh, counter terror operator in in the IDF. Um, I just put all that together. I have my methodology, you know, people agree with it, don't agree with it. It is what it is. Um, but I have kind of my, my, uh, my system that I, uh, put together. And that is what my, uh, my certification uh, program is, uh, is based on. And then with that, we do counterterrorism training, everything from tactical operations to hostage rescue operations, active shooter intervention, uh, suicide bomber and explosives, um, uh, interdiction, um, you know, uh, everything and that's in that facet that's my passion and that's what uh, that's what we're about no, so we it's good we're able to yeah, uh, you know i finally uh, able <laughs> to get my website revamped to uh, reflect everything a little bit more
0: uh, <laughs> yeah no as because uh, i remember when i first started i, I can't remember 2012 or 13 i did, first did the course in uh connecticut i believe and uh, as i said earlier it, it changed how i looked at everything right and you know coming uh, from a major organization and then sort of opening my own school and then developing, um, finding your teaching style that works for you, your personality, uh, is, it can be difficult for especially someone like me who doesn't just like to do what he's told in traditional uh, Jewish-Israeli fashion. But I think the, the your teaching methodology, as I said, really helped me develop to a more, if it doesn't work, get rid of it. I changed my curriculum like four times to be a bit more refined also modified because of teaching a civilian school is a little bit different. Uh, how do I develop my students? What don't I need to teach them? You know, add in a technique because, uh, the smaller students need that technique versus the bigger student, you know, but just that willingness to adapt and change and, and that the why, uh, which is not normal for the, uh, even a lot of martial arts, right. So I appreciate what you what you've done with the organization. Love to come out to more training, but you know, time and money <laughs> it's always a thing. Me. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any parting words or things you want to get out there that we didn't cover? It's important to you.
1: Uh, not specifically, you know. I, I appreciate uh, the uh, uh, the time here. I always love discussing, uh, you know, this uh, this stuff. Uh, Everybody should get out there and train like your life depends on it. You are responsible for the safety of yourself and your loved ones. Nobody else is uh, responsible for that. So, you know, um, go out there, find a good school, find a good instructor and uh, and train and uh, do your part to uh, be good in this world and help each other out and uh, make the world a better place for everybody. I think the fight is on that between good and evil and everybody's yeah. gonna on their sides and everybody has to do their part, you know, so. That's all the words of wisdom I might
0: come up with right now. Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, what's the best, if people want to get in contact with you to do any kind of training, what's the best method?
1: Uh, the easiest is just through uh, through the website, www.ct707.com. Tango 707com
0: How military. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on and uh, we'll have to have you on again in, in the future and expand on uh, more topics.
1: It's been a pleasure. Good seeing you and speaking to you again. All the best. Stay safe and we'll chat soon.
0: You're listening to The Warriors' Day. Warriors' Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions.